1: With John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: Hey, it's Kevin Hart. In this basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back all my game tickets. Plus, tickets for 23 of my biggest fans to cheer me on while I enjoy the game. Find your seats. I appreciate the support, people. Eat that pretzel. This will never get old. Use more napkins. Okay, this is starting to get old. Say the tagline. Cash back like a pro. With Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase,
1: make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's easy to use, and it's fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. And FanDuel Sportsbook is now live in Ontario, Canada. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code Jason T so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, or Wyoming. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-877-8-HOPE and Y or text HOPE and Y to 467-369 in New York. Tennessee Redline is 1-800-889-9789. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia or 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. All right, welcome to Lakers tonight presented by FanDuel here at the volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope you all had a great weekend. I got out and played some golf yesterday for the first time in about a half year that went about as you could have expected. I've never seen a sport like golf before where like you grow up and you're playing sports and like if you're playing poorly or you're struggling, the answer is to play harder. And golf could not be a war sport for you to try to play hard in. That's just when things start to get disastrous. But I had fun getting out there, and I'm actually looking forward to summer. I'm getting uh, all of the cold weather. I am very excited to talk some NBA basketball today. The Lakers are done. It's over. And we're going to do a little bit of a, a miniature eulogy for them today, but we're not going to dwell on them for too long. We had an incredible showdown between Luka Doncic and Giannis Antetokounmpo in Milwaukee between the Mavs and the Bucks, We're going to break that game down in its, entirety, in, in its entirety. And for those of you guys who stick around for the end, we're going to talk a little bit about the Brooklyn Nets, and we're going to bring my guy Carson on to get into some other stories around the NBA. But let's start with the Lakers. <clears throat> that game today was frustrating for a lot of different reasons. that came out with this incredible, intense effort, right? And – all you Laker fans, you see right through that because we've seen it all season. This incredible, catastrophic loss for whatever reason, leading to all of this doom and gloom negativity. And then they almost always come out with like a weird, intense energy in the next game, like a denial type of energy. But it's it's so fake because it's not there when it actually has an opportunity to, to uh, actually facilitate some sort of change in outcomes. That same effort is not there when the, the when the Lakers desperately need it. Instead, it comes when it's too late. Too little, too late is kind of a theme for the season. Like I said in the show uh, the other day, it's a theme that I, I've seen consistently with, the, with this Laker team. They have tried all season long to tell us exactly who they are and what they're made of, what their championship character is. And the outlier examples have been the bits where the effort is sharp. The outlier examples have been when they've gone down kicking and screaming rather than laying down. Those are the outliers. The far more common scenario has been a lack of attention to detail, a lack of intensity, to go with all of this self-sabotage that we laid out in detail in Friday's show. And then, yeah, you have got a little bit of a second half lead. I think they were up by seven at one point in that third quarter, but you knew what was gonna happen. I was talking with my producers during the halftime show And we were like, what's the over-under for points allowed by the Lakers in the second half? And we put it at 63 and a half, just kind of having fun with the guys talking. And they gave up 67. And they gave up 64 in the second half the other day against the Pelicans. When the chips are down and this team actually needs to get stops, they can't. Why? Because it's hard to get stops in the NBA, regardless of your personnel. There's a level of, of effort and focus but there's also a level of like habits and instincts and you have to build those we talked about this with the memphis grizzlies the other day the reason why the grizzlies are defending so well is because from the top down culturally within that franchise there is an expectation to do your job within the defensive responsibilities of the team so regardless of whether one guy's in or one guy's out jaron jackson out doesn't matter jaron jackson's been like anthony davis for that team doesn't matter they uh, without him they're still getting stops it's because culturally they have built that out as part of the team. And that's that culture did used to exist with the Lakers in the first two years of the LeBron and AD era. That's why when Anthony Davis went out, they did get a ton of stops. But this season, it's been utterly gone. And that's been a huge part of why when the chips are down and they actually need to get stops, they haven't been able to. And then the Russ-AD pairing is an interesting pairing for a couple of different reasons. We saw this a lot early in the season when they lost those two games against the Oklahoma City Thunder. You saw them immediately put... Um, Lou Dort on Russell Westbrook and you saw them put uh, um, I can't remember who it was they put a big strong forward on Anthony Davis and uh, they just switched the screens every time and because those guys were quicker than uh, because Lou Dort Russell Westbrook could not bully him physically and because Anthony Davis doesn't have a quick first step turned them both into jump shooters and they just couldn't create shots at the end of the game. And so that was the, the the reason why I wasn't optimistic even when the score looked good today is because you knew at any given moment Denver was going to lock it. And as soon as they did, what was inevitably going to happen is they weren't going to be able to get stops because they're not a disciplined defensive team, and they wouldn't be able to score because Russ puts up numbers. We're going to talk a little bit about Russ here in a minute. Russ is going to put up his numbers, but on key possessions and important moments of games, he's a guard that's very limited. And so if you can take away his ability to just get straight line drives to the basket, you can. he doesn't really have a counter. And Anthony Davis, you can turn him into a guy who has to shoot over the top. So I didn't believe, even when this game was competitive, that they had much of a chance to win. And that's just the reality of their situation. It kind of felt like a waste to have Anthony Davis out there. He's in the first quarter looking amazing because Anthony Davis is an amazing basketball player. He's out there in the first quarter, subs out of the game, and he's got his shoe off on the sideline. Throughout the entire second half, he's limping around on the floor. And I and, and I again I admire Anthony Davis's competitiveness. For wanting to be out there with his guys, for wanting to try, I admire that. But it's time. It's time to acknowledge the writing on the wall. I understand LeBron James has to play in two more games to qualify for the scoring title. I've talked about this in detail in the show. I have no issue with LeBron playing in those two games. This guy is a proven winner in this league. If he wants to establish statistical markers for his career, I don't have any problem with that. Get LeBron his two games in. Get him out get Anthony Davis out. There's absolutely no point in having them out there with these injuries to the extent that it could risk something further, because what's your worst case scenario. Now, worst case scenario. Now is you lose the rest of the games of season. You miss the play in tournament tournament entirely entire in its entirety. And you go into the off season. Then what happens? LeBron and AD get healthy. So may and June, they get to rest up. Then, all summer long, they get to work on their games. Meanwhile, the Lakers have an opportunity with their front office and ownership group to try to turn over the roster, get rid of as much of that negativity that's been plaguing this team, and try to reset for next year. And then you go into training camp in October, and it's a fresh start. And maybe you can undo the damage that you did this year to the reputation of the franchise and all of the bad taste that you put in the, in the, in the mouth of the fans this year. That's what you can do. That's the worst case scenario if the, if you get these guys out of the lineup. But making Anthony Davis play with a bad wheel, having LeBron play more than the two games he wants to play to get his scoring title on a bad wheel—that is, it's a dangerous risk. And we talk about this a lot on the show. Like, like uh, you know, it's like with Derrick Rose in 2012. The underlying story to the ACL tear was he was dealing with a bunch of foot and ankle stuff all season. You have a power line in your body when you explode and when you uh, land on the ground you have to absorb impact and you do that with your whole body and so when one part of your body is hurting for whatever reason you start to compensate by putting pressure on other parts of your body and that's where other more serious injuries can happen so again if you if if this team like if this team had a realistic path to try to make something happen, then by all means, I get it. That's that's where, that's where it's about pushing your chips in the middle and going for it. But ever since that Pelicans game, when we saw Frank Vogel just throw in the trash, everything that he learned about what this team was good at and what this team was bad at. I, I'm not going to get into that again because I went into it at length on Friday night. But Frank Vogel killed my belief in this team on Friday night. And I believe the same thing happened to LeBron. That's why he decided not to play. But at this point, acknowledge that that light of the tunnel no longer exists and understand that there's more risk than there is reward having those guys out there. I admire Anthony Davis for what he did today. I just don't see the point anymore here. It's time to get him out of the lineup. It's time to get LeBron his two games that he needs. Those are great, great, great. If you're looking for great betting opportunities, LeBron's next two games, bet his over on the points because he's going to go out there and he's going to gun to score it'll be really interesting to see which games he plays in I don't see the point in playing him against Phoenix maybe Oklahoma City maybe Denver it'll be interesting to see which games he plays in but I think he's going to get his last two in and then he's going to be done so as far as like a eulogy goes for the Lakers I want to get into this in a lot of detail at some point probably this offseason or maybe if we run into a a little break at some point but I want to you know. I I I've got to meet a lot of Lakers fans during my time covering this team. And uh one of them in particular, uh Damin Rangula, good friend of mine, he used to blog for Silver Screen and Roll. Now he's more of just like a a figurehead within the Laker fan base. And I, I've appreciated his honesty this season with the way that he's covered the team. There's a lot of like there's a lot of like apology, a lot of apologists out there that are Lakers fans. And I don't have any issue with people who are apologists. It's just to me. It's, it's not authentic. And I'm always drawn to people who are more authentic, people that are more willing to call things the way they see them. He wrote an article this morning. He broke out of writing retirement and wrote an article this morning talking about how this was basically his least favorite Lakers team that he's ever rooted for. And in it, he talked about how the Laker franchise in general is obsessed with star power. And when they're making their decisions, and it extends all the way from the top down, it's very frequently not about what uh, what qualifications a person has or what the specific job needs, but it's rather more of like a parochial, like we're, we're friends or we're family or we have a loyalty to you for one reason or another. It's a really strange dynamic that surrounds the franchise. And in a weird way, it has poisoned everything that they've tried to accomplish in the last couple of years. Look down the roster, like, you're, look down the, the organization. You've got Genie Bus, who's literally an owner who inherited the franchise, right? And then you go to Rob Polinka, your president of basketball operations. This is a guy who literally was given the job because he was Kobe's agent. He's far and away one of the bottom, probably a bottom third GM in the league in terms of his willingness to put in the work, his willing to willingness to dive into the weeds of scouting. Talent around the NBA, watching tons of NBA basketball so that you understand what's working and what's not working. That's not a strength of his. And then going down to the coaching staff, you've got Frank Vogel, who's literally in the job because they weren't willing to pay the better coach, which was Ty Lu. And he's still in the job right now. The only reason they didn't fire him, in my opinion, is because they're not wanting to pay him and he's under contract, which will be a whole other thing that they're gonna have to deal with this offseason. But it extends down the roster instead of looking at how you won the title in 2020, which was LeBron James, Anthony Davis, playing at the peak of their powers with really high quality role players around. And these role players were filling very specific responsibilities that needed to be filled around LeBron James and Anthony Davis. But instead of acknowledging that, which they basically fell backwards into, they wanted Kawhi Leonard. Now, Kawhi Leonard's so good that it might've worked out anyway, but they felt they kind of fell ass backwards into the right role players in 2020. But ever since then, all they've done is undo that because of their obsession with that star power, with that familiarity. It's not find a good 3 and D guy to come in and play a role. It's former Laker Trevor Ariza. You know, it's not find a, a, a player that allows you to facilitate more LeBron and AD at the 4-5 lineups. Instead, it's here comes Dwight Howard again, because we remember he was on a team that we used to have when we won the title. It's a lot of here's Avery Bradley. Here's familiarity. Here's older veteran players, guys that we have this this this, you know, sentimental attachment to Carmelo Anthony. I talked a lot about him on Twitter today because he hasn't shot the ball well, basically, for the last two thirds of the season. And with all of the issues that you have with him defensively, it just doesn't make sense for him to be on the court. But if you really trim all the fat and you look back and you see that they have these two core pieces in LeBron James and Anthony Davis that are still very much the right core pieces that you want if you're going to try to win a championship. But everything around that those decisions are being made with the wrong priorities. They're being made with the priorities of star power and familiarity and nepotism and all of those things that I just talked about. That has to be killed. You guys have to go check out Demand's article. I tweeted it out earlier. You can find it if you scroll down. I, I loved his authenticity there. I loved the way that he painted a very accurate picture, in my opinion, of the way that this, this is a top-down poisoning Of this franchise and it's really discouraging to me because as we look into the into the future you know there are a half dozen gms in the nba that if i gave them the lakers this offseason i would feel utterly and supremely confident that they could restore what happened in 2020 Nassau ujiri for example Nassau ujiri had the keys to the lakers this summer i believe they would win the championship next season if lebron james and anthony davis stayed healthy that's how doable this is but Laker fans, do you feel like it can be done with Rob Palinka? Do you feel like it can be done with Jeannie Buss? Do you? I don't. I I I know it can be done. But chances are, if I told you one of two scenarios was going to go on, that they were going to learn from their mistakes and do everything that they needed to do to restore the 2020 type of vibe and culture around the Lakers, or if they were going to continue to make the same types of mistakes of nepotism and familiarity and cheapness and all of those things, which of those two scenarios do you think is more likely? It's probably the latter. And so that's discouraging. And I feel really bad for Laker fans for that in that respect. And, and, and this entire season has just been a a, a, a a just unending line of self-sabotage. And and I don't blame Lakers fans for being frustrated. Before we move on to the Lakers, I wanted to talk about Russell Westbrook for a second, because he's actually playing okay as of uh, over the last month or so. And, you know, Carson uh, had uh, surprised me with the postgame quote in the Friday show. And I talked about how like, Uh, I don't blame the Laker fans for being upset because Russ has sucked this year. And it's a really strong word. And to be clear, like, Russ doesn't suck at basketball in a vacuum. When I say that, I'm just authentically reacting to a quote that frustrates me in the moment. Like, it's annoying to me, Russ, that you continue to point the finger at Laker fans. It's not their fault. It's yours that things are the way that they are. But in terms of where Russ does actually suck, quote-unquote, and forget about the strong word. In terms of Russ not living up to potential, it all has to do with the fact that when you put into context what he makes in his salary, what the goal of the Russell Westbrook trade was, and what they brought in Russ to do, and how the results have looked, you have not lived up to that. It has been a catastrophic failure. And more often than not, I have, and Russ fans are are... Arguably the most irrational fan base that I've ever come into contact with, and that's one of the many reasons why I'm so excited for this experiment to be over. But Russ fans will always show you: here's an amazing dunk he had, here's an amazing box score that he had, here's a game where he went 13 from not, for 19 from the field, and he made three out of five threes, and he had 30 points, 11 rebounds, and nine assists. And they always point to those sorts of things as these like gotcha moments, as recovering Russ. And, and it bothers me because I would hope that at this point we would be above that level of analysis when we're, when we're, when we're taking a closer look at basketball players and the, the way that they impact winning. Guys, if you want box score watching and that kind of thing, you got to go somewhere else. I'm not that type of basketball analy- analyst. I get into the weeds. I like to, you know, I've been around the game my entire life. I live and breathe the game every day. I have a different view of it. There are 39 guys in the NBA right now. That average over twenty points per game. Are they all superstars? Are they all amazing scorers? Or are there guys that put up stats that are less impactful than others? We'd all agree on that, right? Like, do you think Zach Levine is as good as Kevin Durant? Because their counting stats are different, but they're not that much different. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is there is a whole other level to the way that we that that a player that can that that a player can impact basketball. When I was playing at ACU, my last year playing in college, uh, NAIA has really weird eligibility rules. So we had a 31-year-old point guard and a 29-year-old shooting guard. I was 22, and I was one of the younger players on the team. The 31-year-old point guard was an incredible human being that I met. His name was Talib American. He was an All-American the year that I played with him at ACU. And I'll never forget the way that he went out of his way to try to teach me while I was there about the intricacies of winning basketball games. We would play in open gyms before the season started and I would score a lot and I would talk shit because I was a little punk at age 22. And, and Tlaib would always be like, he would get on my case about how I wasn't seeing the bigger picture of what was happening on the court. And so what he did is he started inviting me to these private three-on-three runs that we would do at the school. And in these three-on-three runs, you know, like he'd put me on his team and then he would try to teach me about the little things that won basketball games. For instance, like uh, if if there was a play where I, I helped on a drive, but then I closed out to the three-point line and chased the guy and funneled him to the next help and then came over. Like if I did it right, he would, you know, tell me I did it right. But then like if the next possession I didn't close out or I missed the box out, he would start screaming and yelling at me, just literally ripping me a new one for blowing a responsibility. And the lesson he was trying to teach me was that Winning basketball games is about so much more than making a shot, getting a dunk, blocking a shot, locking one guy up in isolation, or all of the things that Russell Westbrook is obsessed with on the basketball court. Talib was teaching me that you won basketball games on the margins. You won basketball games by never missing a box out, by approaching every closeout like it was the one that could win you or lose you the game. He – And we would run a pick and roll, and he would get a layup out of it. And then on the next possession, I'd take a step back three, and he'd start screaming at me again. Why did you go away from something that just worked? Don't make the game more complicated than it needs to be. This is how you win. You win by understanding what's working and replicating it, understanding what's not working and not replicating it. And, you know, I'll never forget those lessons that Talib taught me. It changed who I was as a basketball player. Those are little details that go so far beyond box scores. And what frustrates me about the Russell Westbrook experience is there's always so much focus on, this is this amazing dunk he had, here's this incredible box score that he had, here's this incredible uh, assist that he had, or things along those lines. Russ is utterly devoid of the attention of detail, attention to detail, that defines winning basketball players. And one of the most frustrating things for me this season has been me watching these games, watching them twice most of the time, and then having people try to convince me that he's actually been great when he hasn't been. And, and I stand by that. And, like, I, I, I'm happy that over the course of the last month, he's been able to have a little bit more positive impact, so at least it's not as much of a disaster it was in the middle of the season. There was a lot of negativity surrounding that, and that got really frustrating. But that's why I'm done with the Russell Westbrook experience. That's why I'm ready for him to be somewhere else. It's simply because that disconnect between productivity that actually impacts winning basketball games and box score watching and highlight watching, that disconnect is something I'm sick of. And it's, it, to me, it's bad for discourse in the game, and I'm just ready for it to be gone. I'm ready for him to be on a bad team somewhere where he can put up all these crazy numbers, and I don't have to argue with people about whether or not it impacts winning. That's where I'm at with it. And again, like it's Russ doesn't suck at basketball. He's a very good basketball player. He's one of the 450 best basketball players in the world. But he's he's vastly underachieved compared to what his contract would dictate, and what the trade and what the trade needed to produce in order for this team to succeed. And I have absolutely no issue at all whatsoever with Lakers fans expressing their frustration about that. For those of you who are just joining us, this is Lakers tonight presented by FanDuel here at the volume. We're going to move on to the Mavs and the Bucks. This was an unbelievable basketball game. And it was a case study in what makes Luka Doncic, in my opinion, a top-tier superstar and a player that very well at one point in the next couple of years could be considered the best player in the world. I talked about this a lot in the, after the nets Bucks uh, game the other day. There's a difference between an overpowering brute force basketball player and a surgical basketball player and everybody's kind of in different spots on that spectrum right like lebron is kind of in the middle he's surgical in a lot of ways but he also has that brute force element to him. kevin durant is very surgical but there's this physical tools element to him because of how tall he is and how how he could shoot over the top of people and then you have Giannis, who's very much more on the brute force side of things he's just a complete physical freak of nature he's not unskilled but that's not the way that he impacts winning he impacts the winning by use of brute force and Luca just was an absolute savant on the court today he was playing chess while everyone else was playing checkers I wanted to get into some of the ways that that he dissected the Bucks offense to start that game so there's an old (laughs) there's an old saying I can't remember if it was John Wooden or someone else but there's there's a saying that coaches use all the time around the game that the ball always moves faster than a player so no matter how athletic a team is No matter how much of a freak Giannis is, he can't move as fast as any of you guys listening could throw a basketball. The basketball moves around faster than any player can. And so that's what makes extremely gifted passers like Luka Doncic so dangerous. I love the way he worked through the coverage progressions of the Bucs early in that game to get easy shots. So it's like first possession of the game, they're using a drop coverage. You've got Brooke Lopez under the basket, Drew Holiday chases Luka Doncic over the top of the pick and roll. And Giannis helps out of the strong side corner and kind of reaches in and and grabs Luka's arm. He just feels the arm there, goes right up through it, draws the foul, and actually makes a floater to get an and one. Then on the next possession, they actually send uh, Lopez higher on the drop, and Luka just easily hits a pocket pass to Dwight Powell, who makes an easy swing to Dorian Phineas Smith in the corner, who attacks a closeout and they get it done. Then on, the, then on the next possession, they go to, to Jalen Brunson, and Luca's kind of sitting off the ball. Uh, Luca's just patiently waiting on the wing. He catches the ball, uses a pump fake to get Drew Holiday to chase him, gets him on his hip, works into the lane, just patient enough until Brooke Lopez steps up. And as soon as Brooke Lopez steps up, there's the drop pass for Dwight Powell. There's another dunk. Then on the next pick and roll, Drew Holiday and Drew uh, Drew Lopez or Drew Holiday gets stuck on the screen. And now Brooke Lopez is on Luca on a switch. And Luca just beats him off the dribble and gets a layup. So we had three completely different type of coverage scenarios where he gets a basket out of it. Then on the next time, you know, all NBA teams want to try to keep pick and rolls to two-on-two coverage. That's the whole point of that. So you don't have to send help. But Luca's killing them in two-on-two coverage, so they send help. As soon as he sends help, I believe it was Chris Middleton who steps in, boom, easy swing pass, Jalen Brunson makes a three. So on the next possession, they don't bring help, And so Luka just kind of methodically works his way into the lane. And as soon as Drew is on his hip, and as soon as Brooke Lopez commits, it's a wraparound pass that hits Dwight Powell right under the basket for a dunk. Timeout for uh, for the Bucs, and it's 15 to 13. And I'm literally sitting there, and I'm like, this Bucs team just got destroyed the other night. They're coming out. They're playing extremely hard defense. They have Giannis on the floor. They have all this athleticism, and it just doesn't matter. Because Luca's just one step ahead of all of their coverages. He has a counter to everything that they do. It was truly amazing. And then Luca comes out of the game and they bring in Spencer Dinwiddie. And I've talked a lot about him on the show recently. But Spencer Dinwiddie, I know he hasn't shot the ball particularly well all the time over the last couple of years. I cut him some slack there because anytime you're coming back from an ACL injury, I know it was just partial terror, but he was out for a long time. It's hard to get back into that groove. He's really playing good basketball, late. He had three massive threes there in that third quarter that kind of – or second quarter that kind of uh, restored – because the Bucks actually ended up going up by, I believe, 10 at one point. And he just made a couple of big shots that got them in the game. That Jalen brunson spencer Dinwiddie ability to spell Luka Doncic so that he doesn't run out of gas is what allows Luka to control those games. And then we get to crunch time. And this was amazing. It's the end of the game. And Luka's literally calling for Giannis on a switch. And he's been doing this a lot lately. JJ Redick actually talked to him about it on his podcast. This desire to call out stars on switches. He did it to LeBron. He did it to uh, Steph. He even did it to KD a little bit in Brooklyn uh, uh, a couple weeks ago. But I thought it, I, I was sitting there. Do you guys remember in the in the game, uh, the Bucks Nets game the other night? How I was talking about how Giannis was doing these unbelievable vicious closeouts on uh, on Seth Curry to take away his easy opportunities. And literally, like, there was one where Seth Curry caught the ball in the wing and Giannis was double-teaming Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant threw a pass to Seth Curry, and Giannis still chased him off the line. And then Seth relocates all the way to the other wing, and Giannis chases him off the line there. It's these frightening closeouts that scare shooters. Lucas saw this. He was making these passes to the weak side corner, and Giannis was chasing guys off the line. He was able to be in two places as one, at once because he's a freak talent. And so Luca starts calling on Giannis on the switches. And it was so smart because he knows he can't score easily on Giannis. But what he could do with Giannis was get him on his hit. Luca does this move where he gets the ball in his left hand and he and he just does a hard dribble step back, right? You've seen it a hundred times. But he does it out of a hesitation, so he can always default out of it. He can kind of just do that in and out, hold in the hezy. And if you're off of him, he'll go into the shot. And if you're not off of him, he can just keep dribbling. Well, he was using that move on Giannis to get him to step up and then quick pound through the legs. Now Giannis is on his hip. And Luca weighs 250 pounds. So Luca, even though he's smaller than Giannis, he is physically stout enough to kind of keep him on his hip. And he would like slowly work with Giannis on his hip into the lane. And then as soon as the help came, then he'd make the weak side corner pass. Except for now, Giannis isn't the one closing out. And bam, they got back-to-back massive threes, in the fourth quarter, one for Reggie Bullock and one for Dorian Finney-Smith on that exact same type of play. And I'm literally sitting there watching this. I'm like, this guy is unbelievable. It's, there's a, he's so far ahead of everything that's happening defensively. And th- he's so different from James Harden. Too frequently he gets compared to James Harden. I, he's so different, in my opinion, because he's a scoring threat from every single spot on the floor rather than just a handful of specific spots that are James Harden's comfort zones. And as much as James Harden is a good passer, James Harden is a very good passer, but Luka is that top-tier type of playmaker. Up there with the LeBrons and the Jokic's and the CP3's of the world, there's another level to it. And his ability to make those types of reads and those types of decisions put him on an entirely different level, in my opinion. I was blown away by Luka today. It's hard to say whether or not he'll ever be the best player in the league because the league is so stacked. That's a complicated conversation. You've got Giannis. Doing what he's doing, who knows what's going to happen with Jokic and Bead over the next couple of years? I'm not as high on them as other people, but Luca on any given night is capable of outplaying the best players in the world. Look at the role Giannis has been on. Giannis literally just outplayed Joel Embiid for a win and outplayed Kevin Durant for a win in the last week. Unbelievable stuff from Giannis. He's at the best level he's ever been playing at, and Luca was better than him today, on his home floor. At the end of that game, Giannis got a bunch of points in, in garbage time when the game was over. When the game was – at that last time out, when, the, when the, I think the, uh, uh, the Mavericks were up by nine with about three minutes left, he only had 22 points. And I'm not undercutting Giannis by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying that Luka is that type of dude. He's the type of dude that can stare Kawhi Leonard in the face and be like, I'm better than you. And he did that in the playoffs twice. And he can do the same thing to Giannis. He can do the same thing to LeBron. He can do the same thing to everybody. It doesn't mean he's better. It just means that he's on that level, which gives them a puncher's chance to beat any of the guys that are at that level. Moving on to the Bucs a little bit. Part of the reason why Giannis struggled so much is something that I've been talking about a lot on the show recently. The Mavs are a very good scramble and recover type of team. They don't have great defensive personnel. We've talked about this a lot on the show. But they're extremely good at thriving in the chaos that comes from doubling and recovering, right? So they, whenever they find themselves in a matchup that they don't like, they just send multiple bodies at a guy. And what they did such an amazing job of with Giannis today is take away his super easy opportunities. I talked about this against the Nets the other day. When Giannis would catch the ball in single coverage and have a thin, wiry defender on him that doesn't really have any chance to, to guard him, he would just quick rip through, go to the rim, get a dunk or get fouled. And, he, and it was like all night long he was getting – One of those every five or six possessions. And those are more defensive breakdowns than anything else. I know that he's being guarded, but you can't guard Giannis one-on-one. Not in space, at least. And so what the the Mavs did an extremely good job of tonight is they consistently got back in transition and set their wall, but every time that Giannis caught the ball, he was playing in a crowd. If he would have wanted to do his rip through to the right or to the left on Dorian Finney-Smith, there was another defender just standing there waiting all game long. And as a result, you were able to take away his easy stuff. And when you take away Giannis's easy stuff, the game does get a little bit harder for him. It's not that, it doesn't mean he's not a superstar. It's just the difference between him being 40 plus point a game absolute Superman and him looking more human is take away his easy stuff, get back in transition, build the wall, make him play in a crowd. You will make him a beatable opponent. How does Luca outplay Giannis? It's not just Luca in everything that he can do with the basketball in his hands on offense, it's also Dallas in their discipline on defense and their willingness. It's hard to sprint back and transition in Milwaukee when that athletic team is flying up and down the floor. It is hard on every single possession to set dig defenders on both sides to take away easy driving lanes and to rotate out on the backside. It's difficult to do what they do, but they're so bought into it, and they do it so well. And I, it was really, really impressive. I'm not sure what this means for Dallas. I, I go up and down with them because they have, you know, their defense is a little gimmicky. In I think it's easier in these one-game settings in the regular season to make up for a lack of defensive personnel with scheming. But I think it becomes infinitely harder in a postseason series when it's more of a chess match. All I know is don't count out this Luka guy because a lot of those same defensive problems existed against the Clippers in the last two years, and he had no problem putting that series on the break both times. So gun to my head, I look at this situation and I see Luca playing better than he's ever played, having a better defensive concept behind him than he's ever had, and another backup playmaker in Spencer Dinwiddie that's probably better than Jalen Brunson, but also having Jalen Brunson there as well, There's, it's just a much better version of the team last year that damn near beat the LA Clippers with Kawhi Leonard, the same LA Clippers that without Kawhi Leonard made it to the conference finals. That's a significant That's a significant indicator of what this team may or may not be capable of. Uh, one last note on that game in particular, and this is on the Bucks. They have so many physical advantages, they have to find a better way to try to make them pay for that. I don't know if that's being a little less concerned with your transition defense and maybe crashing the glass more i don't know if that's kind of getting out of your offense to run more actions directly targeting luca to maybe try to fatigue him a little bit they did that a little bit in the first half with isolations with drew holiday and they actually got some good stuff out of it maybe that's what you need to do is a little bit more of that and try to get luca out of his rhythm by making him play more defense than he wants to there, you, you just got to have find that. Those are the counters that I would go to if I was the Bucs. Super interesting game, though. And I, I'm really thankful that, you know, with LeBron kind of exiting this arena here in the next few years, I'm really thankful that we have an awesome new crop of stars coming up. And Luka Luca and Giannis are going to be really fun to watch over the next few years. And I'm very thankful that Giannis didn't end up in Dallas. That was a big potential outcome there when things were getting dicey with the Bucs and signing that Supermax extension. It would have been like 2017 Warriors-esque it, with the level of certainty surrounding outcomes in the NBA if you got those two on the same team. Just, just unbelievable stuff. FanDuel Sportsbook is an official sports betting partner of the NBA. And with FanDuel's same-game parlays, you can turn little bets into big paydays, like on Tuesday when the Lakers play. You can bet for the Lakers to lose, but take LeBron's points over because you know he's chasing the scoring title. You get fast payouts, it's easy to use, it's safe and secure. Plus, if you're a new customer, you get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. Make every game feel like the finals all season long. Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app or head to FanDuel.com and sign up using promo code JasonT to bet the NBA today and get your first bet risk-free.
2: How are we doing, Jason?
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere.
1: Warm weather brings many outdoor activities, happy hours after work, weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning—stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism—through whole-body health. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops, that's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Neutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L, dot com, promo code Hoops, that's H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well, Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals. get the job done well. It's something that I've always been a big believer in. When Usually when you try to take on a project that you don't know how to do, it ends up just being a bigger headache as you try to learn and then you end up making mistakes and it ends up just not being worth it. Not only can a professional get the job done more efficiently, but you're also supporting local businesses in your area. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects easy. Angie has cost guides to tell you what others have paid for similar projects both nationally and in your area. The app is free and easy to use. We all know the difficulties that can come with home projects. Angie makes tackling your project as simple as possible from start to finish. Turn to Angie with confidence even for major renovations or emergency repairs. Are you renting? Even renters can come to Angie for moving installations and cleaning. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. I'm doing good, buddy. How was your weekend?
2: It was very good. I am just peachy. So, as you said, we've got a game. We're going to talk about sort of what's some reasonable playoff expectations for a few teams around the league. But before we get into that, obviously you just broke down Mavs, Bucks, how the Mavs were able to give Giannis some trouble. And we sent out a poll on YouTube. Who would you rather have over the next five years, Giannis or Luca? That poll was 60% Giannis, but I'm interested. What are your thoughts on that? Who would
1: you take? So I think I'd take Giannis. I do think it's closer than people would think. I, you know, mm-hmm. we talked a lot about this when we were evaluating stars. Uh, in a, it was a couple shows ago, I think. But how much circumstances matter? So, for instance, Mm -hmm. if I have a great amount of defensive athleticism and size on the interior already, like and shooting, I'd prefer Luca because I feel like I can manufacture a really good defense with that group. And I think Luca is a better offensive player. And he's more surgical, which is better and more reliable in the postseason. But, like, building from scratch, if I don't know what I'm going to get, I feel like it's easier to build around Giannis because he can do so much, and it gives mm-hmm. me a little bit more, you know, margin for error as I'm filling around the side. So again, it depends. You could you could build a team of role players around Luca that would beat a team of role players in Giannis if the role players mm-hmm. favored and kind of uh, catered to Luca's skill set more. But I I would say in a vacuum, I'd take Giannis by a certain amount, not a ton, but 60-40 kind of seems fair and fresh to me.
2: Yeah, I think that's always been sort of an interesting dynamic with Luca is that I feel like based on pure ability in terms of the scoring playmaking combo, just getting into the lane, scoring from everywhere, facilitating at this age, it seems like you would have one of the highest offensive ceilings ever, but you do have a bit of that ball dominance, heliocentrism. And you mentioned with Giannis a bit more of the versatility, but like how great all time do you think Luca can be? There's probably some two way limitations there but offensively like are we talking about a guy who could potentially be like top 10 ever in that respect
1: absolutely I mean Mm -hmm. we talked about this a while back but you you can kind of see it with his shot and the inconsistencies in his shot especially at the free throw line like Mm -hmm. I think Luca is Luca's like that kid that you know that never tries at anything, but for some reason, he's better than everybody at anything. Like he's one of the most <laughs> <Yeah>. naturally <laughs> gifted human beings to ever set foot on this earth. And like, 100%. I do believe there's going to be a phase of his career where he starts to embrace the work ethic, particularly when it comes to his physique in a way that will lead to to him having a really dominant stretch. But the truth of the matter is, is like so much of this depends on, on like management, but I trust Mark Cuban in Dallas to give him enough to be the kind of guy that's relevant long enough that he can have that type of career. Now, last last little note on that, this is why it's so important for him to take care of his body. So many of these kinds of things come down to health. So many of these kinds of things come down to little breaks along the way. And so that's part of why I hope that Luca finally, soon, starts taking care of his body to a greater extent because I want him to have a long career. Because if he does, I absolutely think, I would say top five player, ever is absolutely doable for him.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a fascinating question, honestly, and just a testament to obviously the kind of all-time talent that does exist in the league right now as the game continues to evolve. All right. So it's really kind of unfathomable. All right. So the game that we have now is called expectations management. And like I said, pretty much I'm going to name a team. You're going to tell me what you think would, equal playoff success for them what's an expectation that they should be happy with in terms of what they can do this postseason we're going to start with the Utah Jazz what would playoff success look like for them
1: (laughs) um that's an interesting one I would say you know these small markets they operate on different wavelengths in terms of the expectations in a lot of ways like If they made the conference finals there's a case to be made that if you're the utah jazz with the type of stars that you have access to in free agency with the way you have to build your team that that would be a success but in the context of everything that's happened in the last few seasons it will be deemed a failure so they're in the really unfortunate position where if they don't win a championship they have to blow things up but they're also just not going to win a championship what happened against the Mm -hmm. warriors the other night was absolutely insane my uh so The Warriors switch every screen, which, of course, completely uh, shut down the Jazz offense at the end of the game, especially because we talked about this a lot, but they rely on small guards to create all of their isolation possessions on the perimeter for the most part outside of Bogdanovich. And he's just not that good. And when you have Mm -hmm. a team like the Warriors, that's just completely fielding lineups full of rangy wings all the time. They're, they're just going to have a lot of success stopping them in those isolation possessions. There's this crazy clip out there that's making the rounds on Twitter today of, uh, of the Warriors making like six straight threes to turn that game around at the end yesterday. But what was interesting is there's a very easy way to beat that coverage if you have a guy like Rudy Gobert, and it's to punish the switches inside. You know, it, it, it just instead of Donovan Mitchell being like, I'm going to attack your big man on this switch, it's get the ball into Rudy Gobert dealing with the little guy under the basket. But Krangis, uh, the Krangis is a guy that uh, covers the Lakers, does a bunch of analytics stuff. He released some stats today that were unbelievable. This entire season, Rudy Gobert has 10 made baskets attacking switches underneath the rim, 10 in 70-plus games. He just – he's not any good at it. His teammates don't trust him in those scenarios. The whole situation is kind of poisoned on that front. So, the inevitable thing that's going to happen with this team is they're going to face some team that switches every screen. Donovan Mitchell, and Mike Conley aren't going to be able to create enough shots. Rudy Gobert is not going to punish teams for him switching onto a smaller player, and they're going to lose. And then they're going to finally blow things up. But, yeah, I mean, a realistic expectation is if they win a series in the first round, I would be impressed. <laughs> but I, I mm-hmm. think uh, real, I think as a team internally, they're probably talking title or bust.
2: Does that blow up have to be splitting up Donnie and Gobert to you? Like, is there a way where with those two still in terms of cap, they could add the kind of shooting and defense on the wings and perimeter that they need, or does it have to be – We're splitting up these two.
1: You have to split them up. And I think it has to be Rudy. If they trade Donovan, it'd be a huge Mm -hmm. mistake. Now there's some intel out there that says that Donovan doesn't want to stay in Utah. So like if there's this has to be done with some sort of real serious, honest conversations with Donovan, like, hey dude, we're gonna blow this up. We're gonna ditch Rudy. We'll build this how you want to. I just need some sort of commitment that you're going to stay. And then maybe if he commits, then you can go that route. But it gets really complicated if Donovan's like, nah, dude, I'm out of here I, I, for whatever reason. The reason why mm-hmm. Rudy should be in a vacuum, the guy they move, is because as, as much as I've defended his defense, and I will defend his defense in the sense that he's not responsible for the Jazz's defensive problems. He's, he can guard in any type of coverage. The, the problem is, is that a, for a player like that, who cannot punish switches, it's not worth the max. And it's tough to have that much money tied up on your payroll for a player who can't do that kind of thing. I don't think you can take screen assists to the bank for a max contract or (laughs) dunking finishes under the basket for a max contract. You're better off, like if you could get a Clint Capella type of player in there in that role, you experience a drop. You're only going to get like Maybe seventy percent of what Rudy brings to the table, but you're going to get uh, if you can find a player who can do that type of thing for significantly less money. You're better off redirecting those resources to to a bigger wing or players that can defend on the perimeter and some sort of isolation player that's not a small guard. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the cap hit. Gobert is going to be making almost forty seven million dollars in twenty twenty six. So, like, there's just no flexibility there whatsoever. All right, Jason, expectations management. What does playoff success look like for the Chicago Bulls this year?
1: Ooh, that's a really good question. In their defense, Lonzo Ball being out is a wrinkle. The way this team was constructed depended on this kind of force of perimeter defense from Lonzo Mm -hmm. and Alex Caruso um simply because their stars are not defensive minded in terms of big threes in nba history levine DeRozan, and uh now i'm blanking in his name um vucevic the center yeah thank you vucevic. Yeah. Uh, those three guys are probably three of the, the, the three worst defenders to make up a big three in nba history if you had if you had to guess so from that standpoint like they depend so much on guys doing the dirty work there's a a ridiculous block from Patrick Williams yesterday. You have young talent, defensive talent around them that do a lot of stuff that that's exciting. But in the playoffs, I have a feeling that they're a team that's going to be very vulnerable to scheming, uh, and they're going to find ways to attack Vucevic. They're going to find ways to attack DeRozan and to, and to attack Levine. Now, I would say if they won a playoff series at all, that would be a massive success, especially if you look at the recency or the recent years in what they've accomplished. Uh, As a franchise, the Chicago Bulls. Uh, That said, I would you pick them over any of those top four seeds? I wouldn't.
2: No, I wouldn't either. Do you think there's value in what they've put together this year and like keeping together this core? Because there was so much skepticism initially, and then there was so much excitement. But now, if you just settle in to this, you know, five seed range, like, what are your thoughts? Did they make the right move going and putting together this core?
1: I think so. I, I, I'm always going to be a defender of teams that go for it, you know, just because mm-hmm. I hate loser attitudes, you know. right. But like the reason the, the case for why this was smart is the development of younger players. You you have to look at this like like Levine and DeRozan aren't going to be declining anytime soon. Vucevic is what he is. But if Patrick Williams can make a leap, especially on offense, Alex Caruso makes significant offensive improvement each year because he's already a great defensive player, but he's each year he gets a little bit better in pick and roll, a little bit better shooting the basketball. He had a year with the Lakers last year where he shot forty percent from three. he's obviously he's had an injury derailed season this year. but like Alonzo kind of is what he is at this point, but Lonzo has some weaknesses, especially finishing around the basket if the the, the case is Kobe White obviously as well as a bench guard, the case is those guys all getting better and what that means. Around those three, you know, and and you, what you don't want to have is like a situation where you're only dealing with young talent. That's what's been killing the Pelicans for a long time. That's what makes the CJ McCollum trade so smart. You get in a veteran proven good player alongside the young players. All of a sudden you have a more feasible product. That's the way I look at it is you you brought in DeRozan. Levine has turned into a legitimate star. You get those guys in with young talent that has a lot of upside. The the angle is, is over the course of the next few years, you might become more relevant. And then as we know in the NBA, all it takes is a key injury here or a key matchup there. And suddenly you're in the conference finals. And now it's all about like, who knows what can happen? You can win the series. So I, I I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very pro what Chicago did. You just Mm -hmm. have to change your expectations. They're not the Lakers. They're not going to be able to sign these huge big name guys. So they have to go about it a different way. And I'm totally fine with the way they went about it.
2: Right. All right. Well, we talked a bit about this team on Friday and dove a little bit into what their playoff expectations might be. But Jason, what does playoff success look like this year for the Memphis Grizzlies?
1: They're good enough to win the title in the locker room. I'm sure they're talking about how their goal is to win the title. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if we look in NBA history, at young teams like this that go on runs, young cores that go on runs. Think like the Golden State Warriors in 2013 against the Spurs. Think like KD Russ and James Harden in 2012. Um, Even the Chicago Chicago Bulls in 2011 to a certain extent, although they were derailed by Derrick Rose's knee injury. Like having winning, Winning a couple of playoff series and being in the conference finals, getting that type of experience and that type of thing is a massive success, in my opinion, especially when you look with that particular team. Like Jaron Jackson Jr. is going – right now he's all brute force and young exuberance. There's going to be a point where Jaron Jackson Jr. kind of picks up some of that veteran savvy and plays the game at a slower pace and is better at making reads. That's going to be a really good player. John Morant, I think – Right now, he's a streaky three-point shooter, and that's one of the things that could end up derailing them in a postseason series. Is if he gets cold, and a team goes full San Antonio Spurs and goes underneath every screen at the below the free throw line, and it's like, dude, you got to make threes. And he goes cold, that could end up beating him. But his shot profile, his mechanics, the way he shoots at the free throw line—like I see John Morant as a guy that, in the long run, is going to be a very good perimeter shooter. And then Desmond Bain kind of is what he is at this point, but like they've got other exciting young players on their team as well. So like the way I look at it, like play understand the long game and understand that this season isn't what it's all worth. But I understand that in the locker room, they have championship expectations and they should because they're capable. But if they win, if they win a playoff series and take goal and take like a a Phoenix to six games in the conference finals and lose, I would view that as a resounding success.
2: Yeah. That seems reasonable to me. I mean, Obviously so young, the window, you would think is still pretty long from here. And the sun's tough to expect for really anybody out West to beat them at this point, I would say, all right, Jason, what does playoff success look like for the Philadelphia 76ers this year?
1: <laughs> Title or bust man with it, with Joe Ellen bead and his ego, how much shit he talks the way he's been a dominant player throughout the regular season. James Harden and everything that surrounds him, the way he nuked his way out of Brooklyn, everything Daryl Morey gave up to get him. They have a remarkable set of role players around them. Tobias Harris, yes, he's overpaid, but that's a great wing to have out there that's guarding and attacking mismatches and attacking closeouts, knocking down spot up threes. Tyrese Maxey is like one of the better young guards that we have in the league. Um, you know, uh, Andre Drummond is an awesome backup center. Uh, although they actually lost him, I should take that back. DeAndre Jordan is a. I actually don't understand why they play DeAndre Jordan at all. I that's been the one little, uh, uh, little you know endorphin rush for Lakers fans is getting to see somebody else <laughs> have to deal with the DeAndre Jordan problem. But if you look at Tyrese Maxey and Danny Green and Tobias Harris and you know they they have. Uh, George's Niang is shooting 40% from three this year as like a 6'9, kind of rangey type of forward. They have a really good set of role players and two really good stars. There's no reason in the world why they shouldn't be in the finals this year if not winning the whole thing. But I don't think they will because of all the reasons we've broken down on the show this year, most of them having to do with James Harden's decline. But yeah, like this team, this team absolutely should be held to a championship or bus expectation. That's how much talent they have.
2: How far do they have to go for Doc to keep his job?
1: Oh, man. It depends on who they lose to and how. Like, if they get to the conference finals and they lose to Milwaukee and it's a six or seven game series, that's one thing. People will talk themselves into that not being the issue. I find Doc Mm -hmm. to be more of a figurehead than anything else at this point. I think there are younger, more forward-thinking coaches in the league right now. He's kind of reminds me of Frank Vogel in a lot of ways. Like if you put him around the perfect roster that caters to his philosophy and the way that he likes to coach, he can be a great coach. But if things kind of get out of that, then he's not very, he's not malleable enough, if that makes sense. So if anything, if you're, if you're Sixers fans, if there's one silver lining in them having an early flame out, it might get you to lose Doc and then maybe maybe they won't sign James Harden to that super max and get off some of that money or do some sort of sign and trade or something to try to recoup some assets. But yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see. I, I, I would say that if they had an admirable showing, even if they won the title, they'd keep him, but I would say that he's not the right coach for this team.
2: All right. Last team here. And maybe the toughest one on this list, just because we haven't seen them in what in the form that we expected before the year. And we still don't know exactly what their roster is going to look like in terms of health come playoffs. But Jason, what does playoff success look like for the Denver nuggets this year?
1: Denver nuggets. They're going to, they're going to lose in the first round. I think mm. they're almost guaranteed to end up as the sixth seed, which would likely have them playing Dallas. Dallas, their gimmicky defensive coverages with doubling and rotating are actually kind of something that is an interesting challenge for Nikola Jokic. Um, If there's one player on the planet who could solve them, it'd be him. But for all the reasons that I broke down earlier, I think Dallas will win. My thing is, like, I don't think they can win, and their expectations should be that, this is not the standard you should hold him to because you don't have Jamal Murray, you don't have Michael Porter Jr., things along those lines. My thing though is like, at what point do we start to factor in this stuff with Jokic in the way we evaluate him compared to the rest of the league? There's so much like Jokic is the best player in the world talk around, but the team's been kind of like iffy over the course of the last couple of months. And like they lost in the second round of Phoenix last year. I suppose it's impressive that he beat that garbage. Portland team but like if there was LeBron James in his prime would you pick him with that Denver roster over the uh over that Dallas team I would if there was like Kevin Durant in his prime or Giannis at his peak with that Denver Nuggets team you probably give them a puncher's chance to maybe get out of the conference like that's how you would view those guys at the peak of their powers but I don't feel like Jokic has a even a like even a chance to get out of the west this year and that kind of that kind of is like if if i don't feel like jokic has a chance to do that then why is he in the conversation for the best players in the world if that makes sense
2: that's interesting so i think that i mean it's been a pretty remarkable floor raising job by him this year and just to maintain that level of scoring and playmaking production and efficiency so what do you think is the limitation there with jokic that's you know making you feel that way
1: He's specifically targetable in playoff series on a couple of different levels. Um, He's slow in plotting and operates around the basket. So you can beat him in transition. That's something that like in a one game setting is hard to account for because on one night, a team might just be playing with high energy on their home floor and be flying up and down the floor. You know, one team might have a game plan specifically to attack it in a playoff series. It will be deliberately and intentionally attacked. Teams will try to run on them. And then on the defensive end, we talked about this a lot, kudos to Jokic to turning himself into a functional drop coverage center, but one dimensional defensive centers like that are actually very easy to attack in a playoff series when you can scheme around it. So to like everything that we did say when we were slandering Rudy Gobert over the course of the last few years, that was kind of inaccurate, actually is true Mm -hmm. as it pertains to Nikola Jokic. When people see him under the basket, they're not really scared to try to finish around him he doesn't guard on the perimeter well at all he does guard too low on the screen in his drop coverage And guards that are good at getting defenders pinned on screens and guards that are comfortable in the mid-range are very comfortable shooting over the top of Jokic in his drop coverage so like there are a lot of very specific ways that he can be attacked you know whereas in even with him on the offensive end as well there's kind of like a style that he plays that works but it's not like he's a overly versatile type of offensive player that's that's why you would give like a lebron james in 2018 like if i could take 2018 lebron and drop him on this nuggets team with all the different ways mm-hmm. that he can play as a post player as a perimeter initiator as a pick and roll guy attacking isolations and or attacking mismatches in isolation he's immune to to uh transition issues he can be a dominant perimeter defensive player and a dominant backline defensive player like he there's a just a bunch of different Elements and versatilities to to those guys games that I think makes them more equipped for this kind of thing. I'm not trying like Jokic is in a weird way, kind of like a individual player version of the Utah Jazz. Like, I don't want to 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 ignore the results. The results are what they are. And they've had some success. They had a big win against the Denver Nuggets in the bubble, you know, coming from behind. But, I mean, that could arguably have been a choke job from the Clippers, too, depending on how you look at it. So I don't want to undercut everything that he's done. I'm just saying that, like, those are the reasons why I don't put him on the same level as those guys at the top.
2: Right. I'm a big believer in Jokic in terms of, I think, the all-time offensive value, but I think you make very fair points with the rigidity defensively. And, like, you talk about in a playoff context, last year against the Suns where he's dropping every time, even if the screen is set, like, 18 feet out and it just lay up mid-range jumpers for cp and book like you it's a very fair point you don't have that kind of weaknesses with your lebrons or what have you all right well that's all i got for now jason but we do have a couple of bonus takes uh one of which i think is probably going to get you a little fired up after you talk nets so
1: i will see you again so we're bringing you back after the nets all right sounds like a plan mm-hmm. yeah and and one, one last thing on the Jokic thing like I'm not, you guys know me, I'm not stubborn about this stuff. Like if, if I see Jokic holding his own in perimeter switches in the playoffs and coming higher on ball screens to disrupt these guys and showing a ton of offensive versatility. And if he, you know, beats that Dallas Maverick, like I'm, I'm not going to like keep slandering Jokic or keep like, I'm, I'm always reacting to the new information as it comes just from what I've seen from Jokic to this point in his playoff career, and his regular season career, I would. I just don't think he's quite as good as those other guys. All right, guys, we're going to see Carson in just a minute. We're going to come back to the uh, our uh, topic of surrounding the Brooklyn Nets. So they lost to Atlanta yesterday. KD was amazing. Uh, a couple of pieces of context. Bruce Brown was out. Seth Curry were uh, was out. Those are two very important starters on a couple of specific levels. But the Nets have lost five of their last nine games. And in that span, they're 18th in defense and they're 11th in offense, which is really disappointing because, like I told you guys in the stretch before that, they've shown this these flashes of, like, all-world offensive potential, like best offense I've ever seen type of potential in the early stretches there when Kyrie and KD were both on the floor together. And, like, you know, it's, 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 there's some similarities to the Lakers and then some clear dissimilarities from the Lakers because they're over 500. And the Lakers are like 15, 16 games below 500. So I'm not trying to compare them in terms of like, the Lakers are an absolute dumpster fire. That's a whole other issue. But some of the similarities there are like, you'll see the the Nets go into Philly and Kyrie will sit in a defensive stance all night and make James Harden's life a living hell. And then they'll go home and the Charlotte Hornets will come into town and they won't guard at all. And they'll give up like 130-something points and lose and get punked on their home floor when they're dealing with issues in the standings. And so that kind of reminds me of the Lakers with their inconsistent effort. I think, I think the Brooklyn Nets are a switch-flipping team that actually has a switch to flip, whereas the Lakers were a switch-flipping team who would flip the switch and then they'd still suck. That's like the huge difference between the two of them. But like, they're, they're, I, I still believe in them. My 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 faith is wavering a little bit, and the reason why I was I was thinking about this earlier today. Even though the even though the Bucks lost, the reason why like I'm leaning towards like the trend is telling me that maybe the the Nets aren't the most likely team to come out of the East, and maybe it's the Bucks. And it's simply because the Bucks look very serious about their intentions to go on a run. And you can see that in a day-in, day-out effort. They lost today again, like I said, but a lot of that had to do with Luca and execution, and and they also didn't shoot the ball particularly well in, uh, from three. So, like, I know that they lost today, but overall, over the course of the last couple of weeks, you can see like the Bucks are getting serious about this. They're going for this every night. They there's a there's an intensity. and a a belief behind what they're doing. And you saw that behind those two incredibly impressive wins against Brooklyn and Philly last week. Brooklyn, meanwhile, doesn't look serious. On any given night, they're not bringing that same level level of energy, just like I talked about. So that's the concern there. Now, what's really interesting is what's starting to happen in the standings. They're tied in the 10th spot for Charlotte, but Charlotte is the tiebreaker. And there's only a handful of games left. And who knows what could happen there. I mean, the Bucks or the Nets could very well end up getting that nine seed. But there's a very realistic chance, like firmly in the realm of possibility, that the Nets have to go on the road to win that game and then have to go on the road to beat Atlanta or Cleveland. And Atlanta's going to be a really tough place to play in a one-game elimination with an opportunity to eliminate Kevin Durant. Cleveland is going to be a really tough place to play in a one-game elimination situation with an opportunity to knock out Kevin Durant. You know how much the Quicken Loans Arena has has been waiting for an opportunity to – I don't even know if it's still called that, but the place where the Cleveland Cavaliers play. Who knows whether or not uh, uh, that fan base – has not had an opportunity to cheer for anything serious since 2018. That place is gonna be a buzzsaw. And they're a big athletic team that plays great defense. That's something that is extremely dependable. The Nets don't have anything that's dependable. You know, we talk about this a lot. Jump shots go in or they don't. There's been a lot of games recently where Kevin Durant has taken and made big shots but also examples where he's taken and made they're taken and missed big shots because even though Kevin Durant's the best scorer ever potentially it's if he gets to his spot and gets a shot that he likes it it might go in 45% of the time but that means 55% of the time it doesn't and they don't have those instincts and habits on defense to where that's reliable for them you that's what i was just talking about it's kind of more of a day in day out thing When they have it, they have it. When they don't, they don't. And so in those one-game settings, the the Nets are very vulnerable to a bad shooting night. They're very vulnerable to some things not going their way. Whereas Cleveland knows if we don't play particularly well on offense, we're still going to have a chance to win because our defense is going to lock people up. We're going to feed off of our home crowd. Our effort's going to be there, and we have established defensive habits that we can lean back on in those environments. I know Cleveland's had bad stretches of defense, but a lot of it has to do with Jared Allen being out or Evan Mobley being out for various reasons over the course of the season. When they have their guys out there, when they go with Mobley, Allen, and Markkinen in that front line, they're a devastating defensive team, and they cause a lot of serious problems with their length. And so, again, would you pick Brooklyn in both of those matchups? Yes, I would pick Brooklyn – to go into Charlotte and win that 1st playing game. And then I'd pick them. I think Cleveland will beat Atlanta. So I'd pick them to go into Cleveland and beat Cleveland. I would. But it's close. It's a a touch-and-go type of thing, and that's the danger of playing this game. The Lakers played this game all season, and it's going to end up costing them a playoff berth. The Nets have played this game all season, and now they're going to end up having to win two single elimination games on the road against young and hungry athletic teams. So I, I there's I'm leaning towards going with the Bucs as my favorite in the East because of this recent slump for the Nets, and they're absolutely at risk of not getting an opportunity to play in a playoff series this year. All right, guys, before we get out of here, we're gonna bring Carson back for just a minute.
2: Yo, glad
1: to be back. What's
2: All right, so we've got a couple of things from the Twitter sphere, and the first one comes from the honorable Colin Cowherd related to an NBA storyline that has grabbed his attention. He says, I'll never get used to how much the NBA has normalized star missing games. Sorry, don't buy it's all injuries. Just shorten the regular season already. Let's get to games that matter. Jason, what do you think about that?
1: Colin Coward is a wise man. This is actually something (laughs) that I've been very passionate about for a long time. And it's just difficult to find time to talk about it during the time, during the regular season. It's more of like a, Offseason type of topic in in a lot of cases, but it's really this simple. You know, there's a lack of urgency to regular season NBA games, and NBA teams have realized that the best team usually wins in a seven game series, even if you don't have home court advantage. Most of the best players in the league thrive on the road because the growing up, they've always thrived off of the negative energy of of, of road crowds, and so they like their chances in those environments. It's a big part of why Brooklyn has messed around all season. It's a big part of why they are where they're at in the standings. Team NBA teams are not scared of seeding. They just aren't. NBA teams are not scared of that sort of thing. So I've, I've thought long and hard about this. They, they rest players Because they want to make sure that they are healthy in the long run and little things like two days off here or three days off there go a long way towards recovering from a, a, you know, knee tendinitis or an ankle sprain or a sore wrist or whatever it might be. But what if those things were naturally baked into the season now I understand shortening the season is hard because of revenue but you can make up for that in other ways. First of all, I'm a big believer in that if you can restore that urgency, and if the stars play every day, that will trickle down in revenue in a, in a different way but. Let's say you need that revenue in, a, in order to convince the players and the, and the owners to adopt a shorter regular season schedule. That's where things like the midseason tournament that you've heard about that have been brought up or expanding the play in tournament things. I don't know what it I don't mean expanding it to more teams. I mean, but maybe taking it further up to where it's like you're doing a play in tournament that's, you know, that that's impacting higher seeds in some capacity. I'm not sure what that looks like, but they need to find a way. To get NBA teams only playing three games per week. To me, that's vital. It's these two, it's back to backs, the four games in five nights, the five games in seven nights, or whatever, or five games in eight nights. That kind of thing is what wears down these teams. If it had more of an NFL type of feel, where there was always a ton of high leverage, high, high important games on Sunday, and then maybe games on Tuesday and Thursday, but everybody had Friday, Saturday off or everybody had at least a two-day off stretch in every single week, then you wouldn't have as many load management nights. Why? Because why would you load manage a star if you know he's going to get two days off every single week where he can rest mm-hmm. up? And then there is there are no back-to-backs in that scenario. I think you'd have to shorten the season down to about 66 games to pull this off. But I'm a huge believer in shortening the season. And I, and I don't buy the excuse that it would cost them money. Even it, if it costs them money in the short run, you have to think about the long-term success of the league. And restoring urgency and taking away some of the health concerns is the easiest path to getting stars back into the game. And Colin is right. There have been a, a ridiculous amount of nationally televised games and things along those lines that have been ruined this year by stars missing games. It is a huge problem. I don't care if there's 82 games if the stars aren't playing in them.
2: Hmm. Yeah, big boss man, calling right on the money there, and I think you're totally right in terms of improving the quality of the product. The one sticking point for me is always, as a nerd of the history of the game, not having the 82 game seasons. How that impacts totals that that bothers me a little bit. But I think that it is outweighed by the night to night benefit. What do you think? Like, does that
1: matter to you at all? I I understand the thought process there. The reason why it doesn't matter to me is the game's always changing. Like, yeah how how has the three point shot affected scoring relative to early, early guys? Right. Like, if Kareem played today, he's definitely shooting threes because he's one of the best players ever. Mm-hmm. He's probably going to work on threes. You know, like the right. we we count Bill Russell as an eleven time champion, and the dude won all those championships in a, in a league that had eight teams. Like, even mm-hmm. even Michael Jordan, with the six titles he won, came during the era of expansion when the league was kind of watered down with talent and it was just easier to put together a a dominant basketball team in that era. If you could get a handful of good players just because the talent was all spread out. So like the the, the league is just inherently different. And I I, like Seth Curry, Steph Curry has the NBA three point record and he's going to hold it for a long time, but it's a record that's almost guaranteed to break because Mm -hmm. in the early stretches of Steph's career, he didn't attempt as many threes as he's attempting now. There's going to be some guy that comes right. in the league and attempts like 14 threes per game for like 18 years and he's going to break that record. So like as much mm-hmm. as I agree with you, I'm a huge buff uh, like historian buff when it comes to the NBA as well. I read books about that stuff. It's one of my favorite things to do in my free time, mm-hmm. but like I think you have to acknowledge that the league just changes as time goes on.
2: All right. Well, Jason, we cannot wrap up today without Sending you out the door with just an egregious Russ. Well, it's about Russ. It comes from Frank Vogel. All right, here it is. He's doing everything he can. I'm proud of Russ. How does that make you feel,
1: Jason? It's kid gloves, man. The, the way... the. The whole thing that came down centering around the death threats and the the tweets that the wife, uh, that Russ's wife put out that one day, kind of, it all was part of this like larger mission to twist the narrative around what happened to Russ into making him a victim. And I, I don't want to get into the weeds too much there because it's something that I disagree with. The stuff that Russ deals with as an NBA star is identical to the stuff that every other NBA NBA star deals with. The difference mm-hmm. is, is that Russ actively makes it worse on himself with the things that he says. And here you go, like Frank Vogel, it's like he Frank Vogel is going to handle him with kick gloves because Russ has made it clear that he thinks he's a victim and every but at this point too it's like there's no point in continuing to burn that bridge when you know you're trading him this offseason anyway, you know what I mean? Right. But I, yeah. I I I just I just get frustrated because it's like There's not enough being real about what's going on with Russ. And the Mm -hmm. reality of what's going on with Russ is he's got a ton of apologists that always point to his box score numbers, but the reality is, is he's had a bad season, and the trade absolutely decimated the team of talent. It was an utter disaster, and while he has played poorly, all he's done is further play into the fact that he's a victim and that it's not his fault. There's been no accepting of personal responsibility. And and I, I that whole situation just kind of bothers me. Like I said, I'm just ready for it to be over.
2: What I would love to see is, we know that LeBron is the master of some of the, you know, understated slights and some of the manipulation with media and whatnot. I would love to hear him just once, maybe after the season, slip in a Westbrick, you know, it, oh, doesn't seem intentional. <laughs> but he, just, he just slips one in there because the experiment is now over. But yeah, that's all I got for you. Figured we would uh, fuel the fire a little bit there.
1: All right, Carson. I appreciate you, man. We'll see you next time. Yeah, I Thanks, would. I am really curious to see what happens over the course of the, this summer. Just some of the details that come out. You know, just you saw all the leaks that came out around the All Star break. It's going to be a disastrous version of that. And also, LeBron loves to stay the center of attention. I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of leaks come from him during the playoff run. It'll be like Giannis has 42 in game three of this conference finals, but here comes a report from, you know, through the grapevine that LeBron's pissed off about this or that. Like that's just kind of classic LeBron stuff too. All right, guys, that's all we have for tonight. We will be back Tuesday after the Lakers Suns game. As always, we appreciate your support and we will see you guys in a couple of days.